Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that would be chapter 2, verse 17, and we'll be following through to chapter 3, verse 13 here this morning. Continuing on in the series in Thessalonians, whereas last week or two weeks ago we'd been looking at Paul's, how he had identified what the marks of an authentic Christian message and an authentic Christian ministry are, here Paul is beginning to address some of the challenges that are facing this church so follow along with me as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 to 3.13. Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus as is coming, is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, he has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us. As we long to see you. For this reason, brother, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For with thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts, blameless and holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would open your word to us this morning. Lord, that you would send your spirit and speak to our hearts and draw us into relationship with you and, yes, into your church. Father, that your spirit would work in us to strengthen us and encourage us in the midst of our struggles and trials. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In May of 1845, two ships of the Royal Navy, the HMS Terror and Erebus, embarked from London on a voyage with ambitious aims. The mission would forge a passage through the partially, mapped, uh, the partially mapped channels of northwest Canada and pioneer the Northwest Passage. In the process, the mission would also open up new trading routes and allow vessels to forego the dangerous and lengthy passage around Cape Horn. This endeavor was led by Arctic veteran Sir John Franklin, and these ships were equipped with new technology that had been pioneered in Britain. Coal-fired engines powering propeller screws for locomotion and tinned food. It was a risky trip. And if men 
supplies, technology, know-how, or leadership failed, then deaths could be expected. But if the ship had been properly equipped with the right resources and decisive leadership, it would be successful. So in July of 1845, the ship sailed out of Baffin Bay and were never heard from again. After two years of silence, the alarm was raised in Britain and the rescue ships were dispatched. And the rescue mission brought back the tragic news that, yes, 129 men had died in the greatest single disaster at the time in Arctic exploration. A rough outline of what had happened became, started to become clear. All had started well, but the ships had been ill-equipped from the start. The, the engines were underpowered, and much of the tinned food that was produced by a contractor who was the lowest bidder turned out to be rotten. And so Franklin's ill-equipped ships became prey to tidal movements in the ice, leaving the men dangerously short of supplies. After they had been locked in ice, someone on the ship had left a terse note stating that Franklin was dead and that the survivors were abandoning the ship to head south with rowboats. And eventually, the rescue mission came and discovered one of these rowboats and found the rowboat with the skeleton still alive, frozen in the boat. And actually, if you Google, you can actually see the pictures of these mummified people who have been frozen on these boats. These ships were ill-equipped and underpowered for the tasks that lay before him and the trials that they were faced with. And the Apostle Paul here, writing to the church in Thessalonica, was concerned that this church was ill-equipped and underpowered for the trials before them and that they had indeed met a fateful, fateful end. And so as we look at this passage of Paul's concern for the, sta- for the state of this church, for us we see the necessity of the church in the lives of Christians— and the role that the church plays in the, in the role that the church plays so that we are not ill-equipped and underpowered for the trials of life. Three things that we'll see here in this passage. The first is this: is that God has given the church for the reinforcement of our faith, for the reinforcement of our faith. That God reinforces the faith of Christians. Through pastors and teachers, this church in Thessalonica was a brand new congregation. They were likely less than a year old when Paul wrote to them. It was apparent, it seems to be, that this church did have elders. However, the church was ill-equipped for what they were about to face. They did not have the word of God. They did not have any grounding or anyone helping to guide them in their new faith. And so Paul was concerned for them, and he wanted to see the faith of these young Christians being reinforced. So what was Paul's strategy? Did he pray earnestly for them? Yes, we'll see that more in a minute. Did Paul write them a letter? Yes, we are reading it. But Paul's principal strategy to reinforce the faith of these believers was to send a person. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. That Paul's principal strategy was to send Timothy, a person, a pastor and teacher, to encourage this congregation to help them be established. It says that they were established and exhorted to be strengthened and encouraged. It's remarkable to note Paul's concern. Paul, the, the missionary par excellence, 
Paul, who set out on these missionary journeys to lead people to know the hope and the joy and the peace that comes through a relationship with Jesus. And Paul was so concerned about advancing the gospel, sharing them with them the historical truths of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and that we would have eternal life and life abundant, not only for all eternity, but right now through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So passionate about sharing this truth to the ends of the earth. But notice Paul's concern. His concern is that these new converts are reinforced in their faith. Not just that they are converted to Christianity, but that they are established. That these young believers, that their faith is consolidated and built up. That they are comforted, that they are cheered, that they are encouraged and reinforced, reinforced in their faith and in walking in the Christian life. So it is too true for us that God has, that the way that God has set for us to be spiritually reinforced in our faith is through the church with God-appointed leaders to serve in that capacity. Notice Paul's great concern. Notice how much Paul is devoted to this strategy of God using pastors and teachers for the reinforcing of people's faith. We see this in Paul's prayer in chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Paul says this, he says, As we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face, and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Paul uses the word there, he says, so that he may establish your hearts. That is, that God would establish their hearts. It's the same word that he used a moment ago in describing why he was sending Timothy. That they would be established in their faith. But look at the the emphasis of Paul's prayer. He is praying ardently for them. He is praying earnestly for their faith to be reinforced. And the heart of Paul's prayer is this. We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and that we might supply what is lacking in your faith. That God would remove the obstacles. We pray ardently that God would bring us together, that you would increase in love and holiness as we'll see more in upcoming weeks. But Paul's principal prayer for the reinforcement of this church is that Paul himself would be sent So that God would use Paul to supply what is lacking in their faith. That God would establish and reinforce their faith through the Apostle Paul. Notice how it was done. It was done through a person. So too, we are no different. Is that we need our faith to be reinforced. And Scripture makes clear that God has appointed and raised up pastors and teachers for this purpose. To reinforce your faith and my faith and faith and our faith. You know, American individualism has been so destructive to people's faiths. Consider what has happened in the 20th century in missions, in American missions, which is the predominant mission sending over the course of the 20th century. And the, resulting, the result of American missions, of evangelical missions, has been that the church across the globe is a mile wide and an inch deep. Because the goal was to get people saved. Get them saved. And so what's happened 
is that this church across the globe is a mile wide and an inch deep. And I think the Apostle Paul would be utterly shocked and appalled that Christian leaders have adopted a strategy for most of the 20th century that has resulted in people getting converted and getting abandoned by the people who made that happen. Get them converted and, and abandon them. And it's happened all across the globe. I think the Apostle Paul would say, no, how can you do that? How can you do that? These people need a church so that they would be reinforced in their faith. So what's happened in missions more recently? There's been this emphasis on the need for churches. And people say, well, a church is any group of Christians. And Scripture would say, no, it's not. For the New Testament makes very clear some very particular things of what a church is and what the marks, the marks of a church are and what the marks of a church are not. And we'll go into this some other time. But the point is this, is that there has been this perception that all that's needed is to get people converted. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no. And he yearns for the people who, is, who, have, who is, he has led to faith in Christ. He yearns for them that they would be reinforced and established in their faith. So too, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for me? It means the Word of God teaches that you need more than just me and Jesus for your faith to be reinforced. You know, people say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't need the church to be a Christian. Well, that's true. The church doesn't save you and it cannot save you. But the Word of God does say that you do need the church to grow as a Christian. That you do need the church to be reinforced in your faith, to not be ill-equipped and underpowered for the trials that lay before you. And the principal means that God uses for the reinforcement of believers' faith is his church with approved pastors and teachers so that we would be reinforced. See this a little bit more when you see how Paul was wanting Timothy to reinforce the faith of the church in Thessalonica. See it in verses 3 and 4 where Paul says that he wants them so that no one would be unsettled by the trials that they are facing. It's verses 3 and 4. That Paul was worried that the suffering that they are going through might lead them astray from Christ. And so Paul's twofold strategy to dealing with the suffering and the trials that they are going through so they wouldn't be ill-equipped and underpowered, his twofold strategy is for them not to be alone in the midst of the trial. And his way for them not to be alone is to send Timothy and hopefully himself so that not just they would say, hey, you're not alone, but that they would actually not be alone in the midst of it, that they would be connected with Paul and or with Timothy in the midst of the, in the, midst of the struggle. Paul's second strategy is to encourage them by saying, listen, not only are you not alone because Timothy is there with you, but not only that, but what you are experiencing, these trials, is that it is not unusual what you are going through. In fact, your trials, your suffering, your affliction, your tribulation, these things are not unusual, but in fact are a necessary part of the Christian journey. They're necessary to it. So, Paul in his teaching, emphasized to his converts in his churches that suffering is part of the Christian journey. And it wasn't just Paul, it was Jesus himself. He said it again and again. Just look at some of these passages of the, how common this was in Jesus' and Paul's teaching. It says, blessed are you, this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you when this is going to happen. Jesus seems to anticipate that it's a, not an if, but a when. When this happens, so too, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. 
They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They will do this. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world you will have tribulation. Not, oh, this might possibly might occur. If you mess up, you're going to have a hard time. Jesus says, no, this is the pathway. This is what happens for people who are Christians. This is the pathway of discipleship. The Apostle Paul emphasized it as well. Acts chapter 14, Luke writes, When they had preached, that is Paul and his companions, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That the pathway of the Christian life is, is through trials and struggles and suffering. It is not unusual. So too, in Romans chapter 8, a passage that so many people quote, at the heart of it, it says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Paul says it again and again. For it has been granted to you, For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you, just as you have faith in Jesus, it has been granted to you that you would suffer for his sake. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be persecuted. While evil people and and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul's saying, he's saying, listen, here's some reinforcement. You're not alone, and what you're going through is not unusual. Yet, we feel like whenever suffering or challenges come in our life, we're shocked over it. We're shocked by it. We're shocked by affliction and challenges in our own life. We're shocked by when they occur in the church. We say, you know, why is this happening to me? If we go to a church that has struggles or challenges in the midst of it, we say, well, something must be wrong with this place. Something must be wrong here because we are shocked because we think, well, you know what? If I'm doing good, God must bless me. If a church is doing good, God will bless them and there won't be any struggles or challenges. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, no, this is a necessary part of the Christian life. It's not unusual. In fact, it's the pathway of discipleship. It's a little bit like this. Imagine that someone goes down to the ocean. They make the drive you know, three hours or so. They get to the ocean. They walk on the beach, and they go down into the water, and they come running back up, and they say, I, I don't believe it. I-, I was in waist deep, and-, and I got hit by a wave. And you're like, what? And you're like, I, I went into the water, and I-, I got hit by a wave on the beach. And you say, you went into the ocean, right? Like, that's what you did. You went into the ocean, and you're surprised that you got hit by a wave? And the Apostle Paul here is saying, listen, you're a Christian, right? You're, you're experiencing affliction and challenges and tribulation. You're, you're, you're a Christian, right? We, we were destined for this. Don't look at this as unusual or strange, but be encouraged that this is exactly what one should expect as a Christian. In the, way, in the midst of affliction, Paul realizes that we need reinforcement. And that we're reinforced, one, by not being alone, by being connected in relationship with other believers in the midst of affliction in his church, but also to know that it is not unusual, in fact, necessary to the Christian journey. Now, in upcoming chapters, Paul's going to show how the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus are truths that strengthen us in the midst of affliction and trials. But Paul's point here is this, is that God has given the church to reinforce our faith 
in the midst of affliction. That the church is there to reinforce our faith and to strengthen it in the midst of affliction. That's the first thing, is reinforcement. Second thing that the church does is that when the wiles of Satan attack, that we would meet them with resistance. Reinforcement and that the church gives resistance to the attacks of Satan. Look at chapter 2, verses 17 and 20. Paul writes, But since we were turned, torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, and again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord but you? Why could Paul not get there? Because Satan hindered him. Notice that Paul said at the beginning, he says, we were torn away from you. It's a rare Greek word there. It's only used once in the New Testament. It's kind of a cognate of the word orphanos, which you get the word orphan. What the word means is that it's an unnatural separation, an unnatural separation that is both, that is both forcible and painful. We were torn away from you. And why was Paul torn away from you? How could this happen? How could Paul not get back to see them again? And his answer is, he said, Satan hindered us from doing so. That's why it didn't happen. I have, despite repeated attempts, I couldn't get to see you due to the malign influence of the devil. And so Paul's concern, knowing the battle with the devil and the Satan in his own life, Paul feared for what the devil, Paul feared for what the Satan might be doing in the life of this church. So Paul writes to them. He says, listen, I sent Timothy. When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He was concerned about their resistance against the devil. And he sent Timothy to strengthen their resistance so that the wiles of Satan would be met with the resistance of his church. That Paul was not ignorant about the devil's devices, nor his temptation to convert to to new converts that they would renounce their faith. Paul is afraid that they have compromised, that they have abandoned their firm hold on the gospel. And Paul knew that in the midst of their trials, in the midst of the affliction that they were being faced with, that the tempter would be tempting them, and he didn't know how it was going to turn out. And so Paul sends Timothy that the church would meet these temptations and the wiles of Satan with resistance. You see, the principal strategy of the Satan is to isolate us. It's to separate us. You see him separating Paul and Timothy from this church, preventing their ways. And so it is for each one of us that if the Satan can isolate you, it's not long before he has you. If he can convince you and isolate you to your own thought life, I mean, can you really believe in a God who would let these things happen? I mean, you need to find an immediate solution to the struggle and pain in your life. God, God wants you to be happy. God doesn't want... If, if, if the Satan can confine, confine you to your own thought life, to the lies that he would have you believe, to the distorted view of reality that you have, that all of us have in the midst of pain and struggle, if the Satan can confine you it's not, and isolate you, it's not long before he has you. If he can convince you that life is lived on your own, that maybe you don't think you need anybody, maybe you don't like anybody, maybe you think nobody likes you, if he can convince you that you are isolated, and that's the way it should be, if he can convince you in your thought life that in your struggles and in your challenges that you're unique, 
that, that nobody understands what you're going through. Nobody relates that your problems are, are out of everyone else's leagues. If he can isolate you, it's not long before he has you. You see, there's this perfect correlation of those that are, those who, of, of those that are struggling in their faith are, are not involved in the church. Now, does that mean that those who are involved in their faith are involved in the church don't struggle in their faith? No, that's not what it's saying. But it is a guarantee that it is a, it is guaranteed that you will struggle in your faith if you are not connected to the church. That is a guarantee. There's a perfect correlation in that. That if you are not connected to the church, you will struggle in that. You will be isolated, and when you are isolated, it is exactly where the devil wants you because your resistance is weak. And so Paul sees that God has given the church, has given you the church, spiritual leaders, given us the body of Christ, the church of Christ, so that the attacks of the Satan would be met with resistance. Third thing that the church provides is this, is that God has given us the church so that we would be connected in Christ-centered relationships. It gives reinforcement, it gives resistance, and it gives relationship. Notice that each one of these preceding two are all dependent upon relationship. How does Paul want the church to be reinforced? With their relationship with Timothy. With their relationship with him. How does Paul see resistance being provided against the devil? Through the relationships that they have with one another and they have with Paul and Timothy, their pastors and teachers. And so we see in this passage, we, we read of Paul's just deep relationship that he has with this church and that the church has with him. I mean, listen to the depth of emotion between Paul and this church. Many places, but 6 through 10. Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, he has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Notice the nature of their relationship with each other. You always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. That in our affliction, we are comforted by what God is doing in your life. Our lives are bound together. There's a depth of intimacy and relationship that's going on here. He continues, for now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. The joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your, and supply what is lacking in your faith. You hear the, the heartache that is there between them. The deep love and relationship. Paul uses this word, he says, and has, that now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. It's an astounding word that Paul uses. It's only used this way here in this passage. In every other usage of this word throughout the New Testament, which is euangelion, it is used as the gospel. And Paul says, listen, what Timothy has brought us the good news. He's brought us the gospel. That's how deep he feels about the relationship that he has here. He has brought us the good news of your faith and your love. How you always remember us. How with great desire you long to see us and as we do you. You see it earlier in, chap- in uh, verses, where are we? 
in 2, 17 and 19, he says, But since we are torn away from you and brothers for a short time, in person but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly, with great desire, for what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus as is coming? Is it not you? Is it not you? What does Paul mean by that? That his joy and crown of boasting before the Lord, that you are our glory and joy. He clarifies a little bit in chapter in verse 9. He says, For with thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Do you hear the relationship? Do you hear the love and the emotion in this church between, one, between them and between each other? That Paul was so delighted what God was doing in their midst. How do we understand this? Particularly when Paul says, you are our glory. You are our crown of boasting before the Lord. It's a little bit like this. You know, I, I love the Olympics. I love watching the Olympics. I love, you know, following along. And, and uh, you know, in, in the midst of watching the Olympics, you get these stories of different athletes and the road that they were on to get to the Olympics. And as you hear these stories of these different athletes, your, your heart gets drawn into them, and you start pulling for them. And you really want, you know, peekaboo streak to, to make it this time. And you, you really want these things to happen because you know their story. And as they start to succeed and, and get medals, you're rejoicing and happy because of, of their success, that somehow your joy and, and glory is bound to theirs. Now imagine if that athlete was from your home state. Or from your hometown, or as a member of your family, or you somehow invested in this person. You taught them when they were a kid. Maybe you were the coach that gave them a passion for this sport. When that person goes to the Olympics and they're succeeding, is that what happens is that your joy and your glory is tied to theirs. And it's happened so too in the church and spiritually. That our relationships are bound with one another, and you see Paul's heartfelt, raw expression of love, of, of his anxiety and his fear for this church, of his rejoicing and his concerns and, and his longing to see them, these believers complete and whole, to become complete and whole in their faith, that nothing would be lacking, that God would use him to come back and to, to strengthen their faith through the relationships that they have because they're connected in these Christ-centered relationships. And you hear this depth of emotion and this depth of relationship. And quite frankly, that's a picture of what ministry is. And, and every pastor that I know feels this way about their church and about the congregation that the Lord has put them in. This yearning that people would be established in their faith. The distress and compassion that you feel when someone is going through suffering or affliction. The anxiety that you have over the wiles of Satan the fear that you have for people when someone isolates themselves or isolates themselves in their minds and convinces them that nobody can talk to them, nobody likes them, nobody understands them, and the fear that you have for the state of their soul. The discouragement that comes when you see people who are ill-equipped and un underpowered determined to go in their own direction. The rejoicing that comes when you see people who are growing in their faith and the spiritual progress that is there as they're established and live out their faith and continue to honor the Lord in sometimes great trials and great cir and circumstances. And so you get this snapshot of what it's like to be in ministry. But you also have here in this picture of relationship of how Jesus works in each one of us in the church that we would show love to one another's that we would so invest ourselves with each other, 
intentionally invest in relationships, that we would not only share words with each other, but that we would share our lives, intentionally investing in relationships, connecting and being determined to be connected and stay connected in Christ-centered relationships, one with another, so that through the church we would be reinforced in our faith, we would resist the devil, and that our relationships would grow and strengthen our relationship with God himself and with one another. Let me just give a plug. If you are a Christian and you're not connected with other Christians, you are in a perilous situation. And get, get connected into our community groups. There's still ways for you to get connected. Get connected into relationships with other people where this type of emotion, love, care, concern that you see the Apostle Paul having with his church, that you would experience that and know that. And that you would determine, that you would be determined not to be isolated. And not to isolate yourselves, but that you would be determined to be connected in Christ-centered relationships so that you would grow in your walk towards the Lord and live for Him. Because the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. And anyone who does, any Christian who does, any Christian who intentionally ice themselves is like the HMS Terror and Erebus, ill-equipped and underpowered for the perils that are in their life. And by the time they realize the danger and distress that they are in, they are so far down that pathway. But you see, God has given us his church that our faith would be reinforced, that the wiles of the Satan would be met with resistance, and that our relationships, that we would be connected in Christ-centered relationships that flourish and encourage one another. So it's an admonition and encouragement to each one of us that we would thank God and intentionally invest ourselves in his church. That we would thank God and intentionally invest ourselves in his church that God has blessed us with. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I praise you and thank you that you have not left us as orphans, that you have not abandoned us, Lord, but that you have given us your church to be your hands and feet, to be people who are physically and really present with us in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of our struggles. And Father, we do pray for your protection from the evil one as he roams around seeking someone to devour. Lord, that you would strengthen us, strengthen our relationships, that the wiles of the devil would be met with resistance, that you would reinforce our faith, And Lord, that through that, that we would grow deeply in love and relationship with one another, that we would grow in holiness through one another, and that we would deepen our relationship with you, and that we would know just a glimpse of how amazing your love is by the relationships we have in your church. Lord, move us to intentionally invest in that way. For the honor of your name, we pray. Amen.